we're going to turn to Psalm 27, which is a wonderful psalm to turn to on a week like this. It's a psalm of King David of Israel. And David was a man who knew a thing or two about physical threat. Uh, As a teenager, he spent his time as a shepherd, protecting his family's flocks from lions and bears. He knew a thing or two about physical danger. In his 20s and 30s, he spent his time as a soldier, fighting numerous battles to protect his homeland from the invading Philistines. He then spent the rest of his 20s and 30s as a fugitive on the run from the murderous King Saul who wanted him killed and had put a bounty on his head. He spent his time running in the wilderness. Every morning he woke up not knowing whether he would hear the sound of trumpets on on the hills signaling the approach of the army that wanted to, to wipe him out. So he didn't write these you know, he's not a sort of French poet sitting in a, in a cafe, um, drinking red wine, where, you know, coming up with his poems. He writes these poems on a blood-soaked battlefield or in a dank cave. And physical threat is an imminent thing for him. He's lived for years under the threat of danger. Now, these early psalms um, are in particular written in the period where he's on the run from King Saul and he's hiding in the wilderness. And so he's already endured probably decades of that grinding daily anxiety of people want to kill me and they're after me today. So here's a man worth listening to as you and I wrestle with how do you live when there's physical danger. So you've got the points there on your sheet. First, he's surrounded but secure, verses 1 to 3. Now, as we dive into this psalm, there doesn't appear to be a specific threat that David is responding to. Instead, he seems to be talking in more general terms. I think he's reflecting on a period of danger and looking back at the lessons he's learned about God. And strikingly, he does not start with prayer, but with praise. Verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? He looks at God before he talks about his troubles. And sometimes I don't think prayer helps us at all if we're Christians. Because um, it's as if uh, that organ is my fears, this huge great thing and and we're praying we're saying dear god it's terrifying what's going on i've got i can't face the dangers i it's uh, i just don't know what's going to happen it's awful it's amen and we feel still very afraid prayer doesn't work but david doesn't look at all his fears he firstly looks to his god do you remember what we saw last week those who were here from isaiah 40 god's not a chihuahua of a god he's a big strong awesome God and he's more than capable of helping David. So David knows that before he considers his threats, he must consider his help, his God. He's big enough to protect. And the images are powerful and striking. God is my light, my salvation, my fortress, the stronghold of my life. It is striking that the first image he uses in this psalm is light, Because fear is so often about darkness. Every problem and anxiety is worse at night. The fear of the dark is one of the most primal early fears there is. And to come to God is to see the sun rise and chase away the shadows. The first verse alone is fantastic. And it's because of that that David can say verses 2 to 3. 
So he prays the Lord, the, the promise-keeping God, is his light and salvation. When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it's my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. The picture is of a child paralyzed with fear, uh, covers pulled over the head in bed, terrified by the monsters underneath. But then they wake up and the sunlight is streaming into the room. And with a big smile, she can swing her head over the edge of the bed and look under. There's no fear anymore. Because once the light has bathed the room, you just don't feel afraid of what's under there any longer. And as David reflects on God, his light, his fortress, his salvation, he's not afraid of his enemies anymore. Of course, it's not just children who are afraid of the dark. Uh, Some of us as adults, I know, have experienced things that have left us with a deep fear of darkness. And we too need to rejoice in the truth that God is light. And David knows that with this God with him, he is never outnumbered, verses 2 to 3. God enabled him to defeat the mighty giant Goliath, even when he was just a scrawny teenage boy. And he's learned that a basic rule is anything plus God is a winning hand. Anything plus God is a winning hand. Any number plus God is more than the enemy. God is infinity. Doesn't matter how many of them there are, God is infinity. When God's on your side, you always win. That's his point. Surrounded but secure, so he's not afraid. But secondly, we move from warfare to worship, and the whole mood changes in verse 4. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent I will sacrifice. With shouts of joy I will sing and make music to the Lord. This is a run of Psalms from 23 through 34, which focus on the house of the Lord, the temple, the place where God symbolically dwelled. And in the Old Testament, it was the place where if you wanted to come close to God, you went to this place, this temple. Because that's where God symbolically dwelt. It's different for us. Jesus says when he arrives on earth that he is the temple. He is the meeting point between God and man. So we don't need to go to a particular place or a special building to come near to God. If you want to come near to God, you come to Jesus, to a person. Anytime, anywhere, anyone can come to God through Jesus Christ. And the big idea though of these verses really is that When we run to this God, we don't just find security, we also find delight. We don't just find security, we also find delight. He sets me high on a rock, safe, but he also welcomes me into his tent, verse 5. Now, that's not the cramped, damp tent of the miserable British summer holiday. This This is the luxurious tent of the Middle Eastern ruler, where his family are welcome to enjoy uh, the beauty and the opulence of all that is his. That's what he's talking about. Verse 4, though, is really stunning when you look at it. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, 
And here's a phrase that only appears here in the whole Bible, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Here is a God who is so glorious that if you get a real glimpse of him, then you will never be satisfied with anything else. Here is a God who is so glorious that when you've tasted what he's like, you want him more than anything else in the world. That's what he says about the true God. Now this is interesting because we spoke last week about the fear of the Lord, saying if you learn to fear God, the great God of the Bible, you don't need to fear anything else because he is greater. But this doesn't sound much like a God to be feared, does it? A God of captivating beauty, a God we sing to and live with. But there's a very vital lesson here uh, about what a healthy attitude to God looks like. And I think the important thing to get our heads around is that it's a dynamic thing, not a static thing, a healthy attitude to God. There's a um, a little diagram which hopefully will help us to, to see what I mean by this. So the Bible reveals that um, God is immense, all-powerful, that God is blazingly holy and righteous, that he is the judge, a consuming fire. And the only right response when you, when you realise God is like that is to do what men and women in the Bible always do when they encounter him and fall flat on your face. But that's not the only thing the Bible says. It also says what it says at the bottom there. That God is forgiving and loving and compassionate and wants us to come to him as children to a father who loves them. Now here's the thing. If you only focus on one of those two truths, you will end up with a skewed untrue and inadequate view of God. If you only know God's forgiveness and his love, then you'll be tempted to think, you know, God doesn't really mind so much about my sin. You'll you'll be tempted to a sort of irreverent, matey-matey, familiar attitude to God. And also, I think you start to doubt whether this matey, kind, gentle God really could protect me from a terrorist. If you only know God as his power and his holiness, then then you'll be too afraid to really come to him. And you'll think he could never accept a sinner like me. And and, and the concerns of my life are far too small and trivial for, for that great God to care about. But together, when we keep looking at them in turn, when we keep this dynamic of of always looking at both together... They feed off each other to give us a richer picture of God all the time. When I see how impossibly vast and perfect God is, it makes it so much more amazing that that God should forgive and welcome me. When I see how kind and caring this God is of the small details of my life, it makes it so much more amazing to think that he is the one who spoke a word and the whole cosmos came into being. David knows both truths about God and so David is not afraid of an army coming to attack him. And David also knows that there is nothing he would rather have than to be with this God. Always keep those two truths in your heart. And we move from warfare to worship in these verses. And we know here is a God who will be my stronghold in warfare. And here is a God who will be my delight in worship. Verses 7 to 12. He at last now actually starts to pray for protection. It's the first time he's really um, addressed God about his danger. 
Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says if you seek his face, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my saviour. But how different this is from the 999 call attitude that we so often display towards God. He doesn't just want God's rescue. He wants God. He wants relationship with him. You see that in the threefold repetition of face in verses seven to nine. Face, face, face. It's a way of saying, God, I don't just want your shield of protection. I want your face of relationship. I want to know you, God, and I want you to know me. But how incredible then that he can say in verse 10, though my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Mothers forsake almost nobody usually. I mean, the Cray brothers, mother loved them all the, right the way through. I mean, it's incredible how enduring a mother's love is when you think of how many of us have treated our mums when we were children and how most of our mothers responded. But David's saying, look, even if a mother and a father reject me, you, God, your love extends even further. Your compassion is even more bankable than a mother's. Amazing. It's Mothering Sunday today. If that's news to you, then uh, yeah, you can Google the number for emergency florists later. But David says, not even, the, not even the best mother receives, loves, and sticks with you like this God. The last verses then remind us that we can't seek God's face and at the same time ignore his voice. 11 to 12. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not hand me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. His point there basically is God is to be obeyed as well as to be enjoyed. He's to be obeyed as well as to enjoyed. And we'll think a bit more about the, our fear of the words people say in two weeks' time, so I won't dwell on that tonight. But the big point of these verses is basically this. You do not know Jesus... And it's not your fault probably, it just means you've probably not had Jesus properly explained to you, introduced to you, unless you get this. That if I was offered by God, if Jesus said, I will give you protection from any physical threat, you only have to say the word. I'll give you complete forgiveness from all your sins. I will give you whatever you want in relationships, in health and in finance, all the days of your life, and I'll give you eternal life in paradise afterwards. But you won't have any relationship with me. His point here is, if you get who Jesus is and what he's like, you'd say, that's a terrible deal. That's an awful deal. None of those things could make up for a relationship with you. And if you don't feel like that about Jesus, don't feel guilty Look into who Jesus is. Dig deeper. This is what David says is on offer in the Jesus of the Bible. It's not something you can work up in yourself. It's something you find when you really experience who he is. Show your face. Teach your ways. He is a God unlike any other. And so the psalm comes to finish on this glorious note of confidence in verses 13 to 14. And this is a, a before bedtime prayer. It's a wonderful thing to pray, a declaration that tomorrow will be okay if I am trusting in this God now. 
tomorrow will be okay if I'm trusting in this God. Verse 13, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Look up, he says, and you will find the strength to hold on in dark days. Okay, they're wonderful words, but uh, what's the bankable value of them? Do you know what I mean? Uh, What does it mean to say, I'll see the goodness of God in the land of the living? What does that actually look like? To put it bluntly, does it mean if I trust in Jesus, I cannot be killed in a terrorist attack if I've prayed that morning? Is that what it's saying? I mean, what, what are you actually supposed to do with verses like this tomorrow? And this is where it helps to look at the wider picture of the Psalms and indeed the whole Bible story. So we can work out what is being promised by God and what isn't being promised by God. So often uh, when things happen, we, we think God's let us down. And so often it's because we've not understood what God is really promising. So David, who wrote this psalm, did not find trust in God meant he never faced enemies. Even in his old age, he faced a military coup and a civil war that saw him driven out of his palace as an old man and having to hide in the same wilderness again. He understood God would sometimes lead him through dark times. And yet he was able to write these words. And King David in the Psalms is a shadow of the greater King Jesus. And he trusted God perfectly and he was found guilty and put to death on a cross. But God had a greater plan for Jesus than just to rescue him from Pontius Pilate and the Jewish leaders. Three days after his death, Jesus rose again and his death turned out to be God's victory over the powers of evil. His death turned out to be God's way of saving me and you from eternal death. He was rescued from his enemies after they had killed him. But it turned out to be a much better rescue than if God had rescued him beforehand. And for you and for me, behind most of our fears, the underlying, the great fear, the shadow that the Bible says is like a sheet, a great dark sheet covering all humanity is the shadow, the fear of death. But if we trust in Jesus who died and rose again, then we're free of the fear of death. Because we know that just as he was raised back to eternal unbreakable life. So if we trust in him, we too will be raised to eternal unbreakable life. So what is promised? Christians. Christians get caught up in terrorist atrocities. Christians suffering car crashes. Christians get mugged. But Christians know that ultimately, eternally, God will rescue and protect us and bring us to his paradise kingdom. That's the ultimate assurance we have, that the land of the living will be the land where there is no death and we will see God's goodness there. But what does it then mean for today to trust in God? Okay, that's fine. It's, but it feels like a cop-out sometimes to say God promises we'll be eternally secure. Say, so yeah, that's great, but I've got to live in London today. So what's going to happen? How does it free us from fear if bad things can still happen to us? Well, here's the answer. It frees us from fear because when we look to God, we look to the one who is absolutely in control. When we leave this building tonight, we are in the hands 
of the God of the Bible. We are not in the hands of Islamic State and we're not in the hands of blind chance. God is in control and he is overseeing everything from the vibration of atoms to the overthrow of empires. Everything is in his hands. And he makes no mistakes and he has no rivals and no one can overthrow his will. There are no accidents or mistakes with God. None. There are no random acts of chance. He is sovereign and he is in control of every second of every day of every year of your life. And this God is good and he hates evil and suffering and one day soon he will bring an end to it and he will judge and destroy every evil that there is. For now, he does in his wisdom allow evil to come into our lives. And for now, he does allow us sometimes to, well, to go through the same things that everybody else goes through. And we struggle to understand why we say, why me? Why do I have to suffer? Why does it have to be me that's caught up in this, in this crash? But we see at the cross that God used the greatest evil of all time to bring an even greater good. And so God says, trust me. You can summarize uh, things really with a phrase that is on your sheets. It might sound a little trite, but it is wonderfully true. And it is a great truth to remind ourselves of when we feel afraid about the future. I don't know what the future holds, but I do know who holds the future. And if you trust in Jesus, you can say that with confidence. I don't know what the future holds, but I do know who holds the future. If it is his will, therefore, that you survive tomorrow, there is no power on earth that can kill you. And if it's his will that tomorrow you die and enter his eternal rest, there is no power on earth that can preserve you. Uh, David Livingston is the, uh, the famous um, missionary, explorer, and um, campaigner against the slave trade. Somebody described him as a, as a kind of mashup of um, Abraham Lincoln, Mother Teresa, and Neil Armstrong, which is quite an image, but there you go. Um, David Livingston. And uh, he traveled through inland Africa in the early 1800s when uh, it was incredibly dangerous for Westerners to do so. He was one of the first Westerners to, to, uh, to well, in fact, he was the first Westerner to go from the Atlantic to the Indian Ocean. He spent most of his time trying to find the, the source of the Nile when he wasn't um, fighting the slave trade. Uh, lived an incredible life, but he also faced enormous danger and was persistently told, this is just crazy, the risks you're taking. He saw, he buried his wife and a number of his children out in Africa. Uh, he faced understandably hostile tribes, given what they'd um, experienced of, um, of some of the explorers. He faced um, slave traders who hated and wanted to kill him because of his campaigning work. Faced wild animals and diseases that were unknown to the West. It was an incredibly dangerous thing. But interestingly, he was not a man known for his fear. He was remarkably peaceful about it all. And he wrote this, um, he wrote these words in his diary, which are true for every one of us if we're trusting in Christ. He said, we are immortal until God's work on earth for us is done. We are immortal until our work for God is done. Until God says, this is the time when you have finished what I have for you and this is the time to come home, nothing can happen. We're immortal until God says it's time. And so he had huge confidence. He didn't know whether it would be today or 20 years time when he would die. But he knew 
that his life was in God's hands and he was immortal until then. And so why would he fear any of these things when actually his life was in the hands of God? And I urge you tonight, I urge you tonight on this night on after this week more than many others to put your trust in this God for your sake and for the sake of our city. I say for your sake because only this God in the person of Jesus Christ has died for your sins. And so only he can bring you safely through judgment and death to eternal life. And as we learn to trust him, as we form the habit of reminding ourselves every day, I am immortal today unless God calls me home. As we learn the habit of trusting him, we will be freed bit by bit from just being bound by fear and anxiety. I say also, do it for the sake of your city, not just for your own sake. Because as the people that you live and work alongside, see you say facing the same fears, the same anxieties, the same threats, but doing so trusting in God. It is then that people will start to see that the hope offered in the gospel of Jesus Christ has something to say to each and every one of us. They will start to see that there is real peace and real truth and real freedom in Jesus. That's the promise of the gospel that each of us has. What do we do on a week like this? We come to God and we trust him. And if you do that, you can say tonight as you go to bed, I don't know what the future holds, but I do know who holds the future. And as you wake up tomorrow morning and as you leave your house, you can say, I do not know what today will hold, but I know who holds me today. Let's pray together. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Our Father God, we thank you that although uh, we do live in times that should cause us to fear, that we do not need to be afraid for you are with us and you will never leave us And you hold all things in your hand. And so I pray that we would be able to trust you in the darkness and the confusion and the uncertainty, knowing that you, the God of light, will hold us safe and one day will bring us to the resurrection day. Amen.